All right, we're going to have to figure out a way to edit that in and keep or keep my nonsense out. All right. So, uh, Hello, good morning, and welcome to Taking Ship, a guided cruise through dumbest timeline America. I'm Frank Spring, joined by Ellie Jacobs, fresh from his gig succeeding Mac Brown as a booth analyst for ESPN College Football, and also Batgirl Jacobs is joining us as well. Uh, Batgirl uses towels just like Jerry Tarkanian and has at least as much hair. Indeed. Uh, as always, we'd like to thank everybody for their comments, both positive and negative, and please leave them uh, as long as you'd like them to, because we can adapt the podcast to your desires. You want this to be a podcast about cars? We can do that if that'll get you to listen to us. Um, And if you do like listening to us or want to find out what's going on behind the minds, please follow us on Twitter at at taking ship. And that's ship with a P as in place a hold on your calendar for the evening of December 17th. And you can follow Maggie, who is smokes. That was a brilliant transition there. Wow. Yeah, that was professional speed. Yeah, even Batgirl is impressed. Even Batgirl like that. Uh, you can follow Maggie, who is unfortunately not with us this morning, at Maggie M zero one two. Me at Ellie Jacobs and Frank at Frank Spring. And before we introduce our amazing guest for today, uh, just a quick word about what we're talking about for December seventeenth. We are in the end stages of confirming the logistics of doing a live recording here in New York City. Uh, Frank will be up in New York, and just for the second time, well, all three of us will be in a room at the same time, and we decided we should celebrate that with some of our friends. Uh, so please do um, keep your eyes out for updates on that and uh, join us if you can on December, December 17th. We look forward to seeing all of you. Uh, those of you who are not present will, of course, be dead to us. Uh, so unless you send us uh, questions, hot takes, or hate missives, in which case uh, you will be excused. All right, now it is time to introduce our guest. We are very privileged this morning to be joined by Bar- Barbie is a Los Angeles-based attorney. She is not here to talk about legal issues, uh, but I would remind all everyone uh, who is listening uh, that anything she says cannot be constituted as uh, or considered legal advice. However, by virtue of listening to this podcast, you, the audience, are now our lawyers, and we really need you to return our calls. Barbie serves on, an, on various nonprofit boards, emphasizing gender equality and political participation, which is another way of saying that she is one of the most engaged people I have ever met on subjects of gender equality and, and politics. Uh, she serves on the Gina Davis Institute on Gender in the Media, where she chairs the advisory board. She was co-director of Veterans and Military Families for Hillary back in 2016. She is the co-founder and co-chair of the UN Women Team He for She. Uh, she is uh, on the uh, the board of uh, the local board for the National Women's Political Caucus, uh, Santa Monica Democratic Club. It goes um, this. These are just a few highlights from a, a very long resume of political uh, and and advocacy engagement. She is a delegate to the California Democratic Party, a political partner of something called the Truman National Security Project, and a former candidate for California State Senate, which. Uh, if you know anything about California politics, you will know is like running for two congressional seats. Uh, we're really, really happy to have her here. Barbie, thank you for joining us. I'd like to dive in. Let's dive straight in on the state legislative point, actually. Uh, you stood for state legislature. And, and again, you know, looking at, at the size of California state uh, Senate districts and even state assembly districts, it really just sort of gives a, a sense of the fact that America is basically a country that has another country inside of it. And that country is California. 
Uh, so you state there's been a there's a lot of talk and a lot of focus, understandably, in the 2018 election about the U.S., the federal Congress, the federal legislature, for a good reason. Democrats took it back. Uh, as the as the counts have continued, it's been clear. It's it's pretty clear that that went from being a very good election to Democrat, uh, being a very good election for Democrats to a truly excellent election for Democrats. But also, uh, uh, Democrats have been uh, fighting back and picking up state legislatures, padding majorities, uh, and also winning them uh, in in various states around in various states around the country. Uh, you know, you have spent a lot of time with candidates at varying levels and in politics at varying levels. Talk to me about the importance of state legislatures in, uh, in you know, in, in in this new cycle, in this in the next couple of political cycles, particularly given that it's going to be hard for either party to advance a, a legislative agenda at the federal level. Sure, uh, I think a couple of things. You know, California, we are definitely this liberal democratic state. We have now, after the the 2018 election, a supermajority um, of Democrats. So. Um, the most recent uh, votes that have been counted, because they're still counting votes in uh, San Diego and Orange County, um, but we now have four us here, 60 Democrats in our state assembly and 19 Republicans. There's one toss-up in San Diego that's leaning Republican right now, and we have 29 Dems and 11 Republicans uh, for our state Senate. So we have, you know, and our Democratic governor-elect, uh, Gavin Newsom, so we're very much a you know, Democratic stronghold out here. I think what when you look at California and you see the type of legislation that we've been able to pass, um, in particular those protecting individual rights, it really highlights the importance of having a democratic-controlled um, state government. When you look at the federal government, and in particular you know, before this shift of power, um, thank goodness to our November elections, uh, a lot of the focus in D.C. with the Republican-controlled Congress and Senate and White House has been um, a focus on on how individual rights are states issues, right? So the federal government is kind of hands off. It's they want a small government, um, and that anything regarding you know uh, individual liberties is something that is state states should control. So how does that play itself out? Well, in California, you get taxed on a lot of stuff, right? Everything from like our gas to cigarettes to, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of high taxes here in California. I think like our city of Santa Monica and city of LA, we have close to 10% um, tax, a sales tax added to, you know, whatever we purchase in our stores and things. Um, but that goes to pay for our roads, for our schools, for um, our parks, for a, a lot of the things that we enjoy for the fact that you have a civil society, this is one of the things that always impresses me when I'm out there. Is I sort of look around and think, oh yeah, this is what it looks like when people take having a society seriously. I like think so. I mean, Santa Monica, which is like this little you know town that I live in within in, within Los Angeles, we have more green space per resident than you know uh, many parts of the country. So we have like our whole coastline, which is controlled by the state's um, coastal commission, and then we have lots of of parks throughout the city. But those are things that our tax dollars pay for. Uh, you know, we still have potholes and we still have, you know, uh, oh, there's a significant number of homeless people across the state of California and in you know, our cities. So it's not perfect out here, but uh, we do have a lot of things that our, our residents um, are able to benefit from. We have amazing public libraries, uh, I think phenomenal schools uh, in, across the state. Um, and then, of course, you know, our health care and our health care for, in particular, for children. Uh, we have a great state program that calls a first five that provides uh, medical and dental benefits to children under the age of five. 
Um, so I think like, you know, we're, we're doing our best, and there's a lot of things that our state offers, and I think it's because it is a democratic state that, that we do those things. Um, but compared to what's happening in Congress, which is, you know, I think the only thing they really talk about that's, that's individual liberty associated is the right to bear arms, um, which, yeah, I don't know. I have my own issues on that. I mean, we have so many... I remember when my daughter was in preschool and getting a call that her school was on lockdown because wow. there was a shooter around the corner at our community college. And I think, like, my daughter's four years old. Why is she already having to learn, you know, basically how to, like, lock herself in a closet with her peers? Um, so California is trying to lead the way on that as well. And I think it's because it is a democratic state with a democratic-controlled state legislature and, and governor. Um, so, 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 you know, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, so it goes back to the fact that when we're talking about protecting individual rights and curtailing sort of these larger federal rights in a way that protects individual liberties and communities, you know, having a democratic-controlled um, state government is, is, I think, essential to that. And this is part of a uh, of a both an ideological commitment on the part of the right that has been with them for as long as there's been a modern Republican Party to push uh, push back against the idea of, federal, of sort of federal legislation of individual rights and push it back to the state level. That's been an artifact of their policy forever. Uh, but also it has been that that is as my as my understanding goes, has been twinned with a very well funded, well orchestrated uh, and, and just incredibly tight strategic plan to reclaim or to to win House uh, legislature to win state legislatures in both chambers, uh, and also to win important state level seats, particularly Secretary of State offices. Uh, and so, as a result, the Repu- what I think we're what, you know what what has happened is Republicans have for a long time been arguing that the proper battlefield for these issues is the state level, and then they have been they have set about winning uh, winning the state level battles they need to uh, at the same you know while the Democratic Party for a very long time didn't properly pay attention to. Uh, to, to state legislatures. Now we are are playing catch up and, and playing pretty well. Um, quick shout out to the Democratic Legislative Co- uh, Campaign Committee uh, headed by Jessica Post, uh, which had a terrific, terrific 2018 cycle. Uh, so if you were designing, if you were if you were the head of a Democratic caucus at a state in a state legislature, and you were thinking about the issues that you were going to have to tackle or would need to tackle. Uh, what are some of the things that you would anticipate are going to be on the, at the top of your priority list in the next uh, two to four years? I think you know, one thing you focus on is like which state, right? Where am I? Am I in Kansas? Am I in North Carolina? Like if I could, if I could cherry pick the states, because um, that 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 frames um, a little bit, you know, kind of how you're going to go about these issues. Um, so that that being said, uh, I think the importance of the state legislature two things, right? It's drawing these these lines of which districts, uh, the gerrymandering issue, right? So what does that mean, right? We look at what happened in Georgia, and we looked at what happened in Florida, we look at what happened in Texas, um, we look at what happened in North Carolina and Ohio. So many um, Democrats turned out to vote or tried to turn out to vote, but because of the way these districts are created, um, it restricts the uh, ability to really have a, a much more active state um, legislature that's that's democratic controlled um i think this 
what you're going to want to do is is have a, uh, a more independent assessment of of breaking these districts. And that, I mean, honestly, like as someone who's who's taken you know, an, a master's in public policy course at Pepperdine, which is a very conservative institution, it's a very intentional decision to do that. Um, you you realize like how do you come up with with what's right, right? How do you come up with a, a state legislative district or congressional district that accurately represents that community, and then as a whole, where that state can have electeds that represent their constituents. And that's a tricky situation. I mean, I think that, you know, as a Democrat, I want everything to be Democratic leaning. But as an American citizen, you know, I want it, I want it to accurately reflect the people who live there. Um, I don't, I mean, I would love to hear your guys' opinion on that. Like, what, what should these states look like? How do you draw the line? And even though, like, I have my personal preferences, you know, how does that impact how the, how the state should, should look, you know, in its governing capacity? I think uh, the way the the point that I, the point that I would make about uh, redistricting, and this is at the federal level, not about not at the state level, but it's a really good uh, it's a really good example of this. Uh, looking at Pennsylvania in 2018, so earlier this year, uh, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Uh, that, some of our some of our our Pennsylvania listeners are probably going to have to correct me on this one on the process of it. I know the result, uh, but if memory serves, it was the Pennsylvania Supreme Court handed down a decision that, uh, in fact, to the effect that Pennsylvania's congressional districts had to be redrawn uh, because they were ger- they were ludicrously cartoonishly gerrymandered. Uh, this precipitated an ongoing. Uh, I mean, I think it'd be. I think it's fair to use the technical term a shit fight. Uh, at the uh, at the state level in Pennsylvania, between the Republican legislature and the state and the uh, the state Supreme Court, but the districts were redrawn. The congressional districts were redrawn, and what we saw in Pennsylvania, they were redrawn. I, I think it was, if memory serves, I think it was a bi- it was a bipartisan boundary commission equivalent. Uh, I could be wrong about that. That they might have been a little bit more friendly to Democrats than than a, a straight bipartisan approach. But what ended up happening was. In 2016, I think across, or I think across the entirety of Pennsylvania, Democrats won about 50 percent of the overall vote, uh, and of the you know of the overall vote across the state at the congressional level, and won 28 percent of the seats. In 2018, Democrats won 55 percent of the total of the overall congressional votes across the state and won 50% of the seats. So there's still a little bit of a disparity there, but whatever Pennsylvania just did clearly brought it back within, within the bounds of sanity. Uh, and, and, I, and again, like I'm, you know, and I, I apologize to our listeners because I, I don't really quite understand the exact nuts and bolts of that process, but this is a doable proposition. Uh, and you can do that either. I mean, this was mandated by the courts. Ohio earlier this year, it hasn't gone into effect yet, but Ohio earlier this year passed a referendum requiring that their districts be redrawn as well. So this is an issue that's being that's that's coming up in a lot of states in various different ways. This was it was it Texas where a bunch of state legislators like left the state so that they wouldn't have to vote on a final vote voter map? Was, am I yeah, remembering that? Like, the, that's you are you are not you are not remembering it wrong. They were hiding out. They were hiding out like at a Holiday Inn in New Mexico, Mexico or something. Yeah, they went they went to my glory in, in a long tradition of Texans fleeing from having fleeing either from having done something unpleasant or from having to do something unpleasant. Uh, yeah, they went and hid in New Mexico. We we welcome your we welcome your hiding legislature dollars. It's it's unbelievable when you think about kind of the extent that that these that people go through right to maintain their power and protect their seats. California, we have an independent commission that's supposed to evaluate um, the districts. So like our state senate districts are almost twice as large as our congressional districts. Just to sort of when you think about population size, um, 
But yeah, gerrymandering is a real issue. Why is that an issue? Because if you if you make these funny lines so that you have mostly Republican drawn districts, then you end up getting more Republicans in Congress or on the state side, more you know Republicans in the state legislature. We're seeing a lot of that happening. Um, for example, these new states, right? These states that flipped from um, a Republican governor to a Democratic governor, you're starting to see those government state legislatures um, trying to create rules to uh, restrict the um, power of the state governor. There was just like an article that went around, right, about like North Carolina and uh, yeah, I think Wisconsin, Wisconsin, I think Wisconsin's trying to dissolve as a state to prevent the Democrats from taking power. It <laughs> can only I mean, exist when Scott Walker rules it. Yeah. <laughs> if we can't have him, we'll have nothing. I mean, let's see, uh, some data that I pulled up. Uh, as of now, there are 30 Republican state um, legislatures controlled by Republicans, 19 state legislatures controlled by Democrats, and one split. And you have 27 Republican governors and 23 Democratic governors. And then in terms of like a combined state um, legislature plus governor of the same party, so you have 21 Republican, 15 Democrat, and 14 split. Um, so so what does that mean? Like worst case scenario, if you had, say, um, a majority, a strong majority of our states were controlled by Republican governors and Republican state legislators, they would push for amendments to the Constitution that could easily be be passed through. And that that is like a real fear. And I think that the DGA, um, right, the Democratic Governors Association and, and some of the other state-focused uh, Democratic campaign committees were, were focused on, on making sure we, we retain as much Democratic control as we can on uh, across our state legislatures and for our governors. The nightmare for Democrats, that's a great point. The nightmare for Democrats has always been, uh, in the, really since we've woken up to the possibility that this could happen, that Republicans would be able to pull together enough votes for a constitutional convention, at which point all bets are off. Uh, you know, any, and the, the, you know, there was a sort of quiet push to get enough, uh, gov- enough states under, gubernator- under Republican gubernatorial and legislative control. I think you would need thirty-seven to call 38. a constitution. Thirty-eight, thirty-eight. Thank you very much. Thirty-eight yeah. to call a con- yeah, because they was they were at one point almost up to thirty-seven. You need thirty-eight to call a constitutional convention. And the idea was, oh, we're only going to call this thing to put to pass a balanced budget amendment, which in and of itself mm-hmm. to the constitution, which in and of itself is a legitimately terrible idea. But the last time we had a constitutional convention in America, we tore up the we tore up the existing constitution and wrote a second one. There is no orderly prescription for what a constitutional convention in America looks like. It would almost certainly descend into chaos immediately, and God knows what would happen. So we are now significantly farther away from that apocalyptic eventuality than we were uh, even ten years ago. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean I'm, 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 I'm all oh, for ahead. the consequences of, of elections and the way that the Obama Democratic Party ran itself over the last few years when it came to state parties. You know, you reap what you sow a little bit. But at the same time, if you're not going to then play on on with agreed upon fair rules, that's where you have to start drawing lines. And when the Republican Party decides that, oh, there's uh, 87 percent black people or um, um, minority people in that district and seven percent white people we're just going to cut this in around and you know jacksonville is no longer a recognized city in mississippi or something like that then then you have problems and you know honestly some of the stories that you were hearing about attempts to depress vote voter turnout in some in some of the red states you really have to like get a bunch of evil fuckers in a room and just let them go like all 
you know, Austin Powers, evil guy, you know, Dr. Evil lunacy in terms of trying to come up with ways to get people to not be able to vote, you know, not sending power cords for voting machines or moving um, a polling place to uh, outside of town into an abandoned warehouse with the closest bus stop a mile and a half away. I mean, you got to get cre- like that ice raid around the border town that happened. It was like a practice border uh, ice raid. So they're like, we're just going to we're going to do like a simulation of a of a raid. Right. Around. It's just practice. Yeah. Not voter intimidation at all. No. Don't worry. And all of this Not reveals, him. I think, what's at kind of at the core of the Republican Party's view on voting. And, and this is, you know, the, the voter suppression techniques, the, per, the uh, persistent and perennial claims of massive voter fraud, which is, of course, one of their favorite themes. Um, I mean, the, the, the issue at the, at the heart, and I do think, Ellie, you're right, it is, and there, there is something quite evil about this, is a fixation on the idea that the wrong people are voting. Exactly. That's really, and, it, and, and wrong, you know, I mean, there's, there, there's a lot of different ways to view that, but, but, I, but basically we all know what they're talking about. Yeah, I mean, you can draw out the word wrong long enough and people will be able to fill in what you mean. <laughs> That's, yeah, this is precisely, it encompasses a large number of groups, <laughs> all of which aren't white landowning men. Yeah. Oh, I mean, that's... that's hmm? I would say that's. I think we're going to see over the coming, hopefully within the next you know six months, um, these stories coming to light. That they're not just these anecdotal stories from Georgia and Texas and Florida about true voter intimidation and voter suppression, um, and how it's a, an organized effort, um, mostly by the Republican Party and mostly by white supremacists who happen to also be Republicans sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mostly, um, I think that I hope the American people overall. Uh, recognize these aren't just some you know stories people are telling to you know bad someone's name, but this, this is happening in an, at a much larger scale than ever should be permissible. Yeah, like, Chris, Co- never, Chris Kobach never never was, was really one of the best results of the other week of yeah. Election Day. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. If only. Yeah. I mean, losing his gubernatorial seat was a was a re- and by that much was a real joy. I have to say, actually, shout out shout out to the state of Kansas, which had a, which had a very good election. <gasps> Yes, right. I, I have to say, as someone who uh, my family is originally from the Midwest, from this small town in the Ozarks, uh, where you know, sort of Missouri, Kansas, Oklahoma, Arkansas are pretty much all kind of the same. Um, it was exciting to see after McCaskill lost her seat, but to see Kansas really rise up. Yeah. I, I was excited. Yep. Yeah. Right. Kansas inheriting the uh, the left of center uh, political throne, uh, as as was foretold in the prophecy. Yeah. And- <laughs> Kansas is really, I mean, Frank, we talked about doing a, a show about Kansas at some point last year, but we couldn't find somebody that was going to be able to talk about it in an intelligent way that wasn't uh, evil. Um, that it has been the place where the Koch brothers have experimented with actual state run government and it has failed miserably. Um, you, know, ma- you know, tax cuts upon tax cuts, creating huge budget deficits, creating companies lo- leaving and people being broke and the state being broke, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, if you want to say that, oh, we should be running government that way, well, we did and it didn't work. Yeah. 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 I mean, I remember seeing that as a, as a granddaughter. My grandfather had a, a dairy farm and he was one of the few still family owned farms. And that was in like the late 80s, early 90s. And you started to see the shift from family-run properties, you know, families who had run it for generations, to land being acquired by large corporations, often multinational corporations, uh, and and really losing that um, feeling of you know owning your land and understanding your land. 
Um, and then you started to see this, I started to see this, this racist backlash because there was an, an, this huge, like, just, it seemed, it happened over time, but, you know, when you are living in these communities that are relatively, you know, the same people in the same neighborhoods, they look exactly the same, um, and then you see, you know, migrant communities coming in, there really was this fear that I think just the Trump administration and the Trump campaign really was able to exacerbate that feeling of infiltration of the other, um, that when you have these large corporations that are just focused on profits and the bottom line by bringing in migrant workers who will do a, a lot of work for very little money, um, displacing a lot of the uh, undereducated local community um, who are no longer tied to their land. It's, it, was, it was chaos. I mean, I, I, I'm not surprised to see see how things shifted in Missouri over time. Um, but it's, it's been kind of scary to mm-hmm. see how that was able to be manipulated politically um, in a way that's I mean, ended up with Trump as president. For sure. And, and I think this is, a, this is about to take a somewhat dark turn, friends, so prepare yourselves. But, you know, one of the things, no, this is the, the, I'm really, really glad you brought that point up because the way that, you know, the, the transition of, of much of rural America to uh, big agra, big, you know, agribusiness where it's gone from small family farms to to massive corporate conglomerates, and it's not, it hasn't been. That's not the only story of a lot of rural America, but it is a very powerful one. Uh, you know that that I think is it is not a coincidence that we've gotten two pieces of data over the last uh, couple of weeks that uh, you know I think are, are directly related. One of them is just the fact that this election illustrates the extent to which the Republican Party is really becoming a rural party, a rural only party in some respects. Uh, particularly mm-hmm. Trump's Republican Party is super uh, is super rural, and then uh, and then the other thing and this is this is the dark turn is that there was a you know a new set of data released about uh, American health uh, American health and American health outcomes, which showed that Amer- at first the Americans' life expectancy has fallen again, uh, unheard of in the Western world. Uh, it's fallen specific. It's fallen for men. It's fallen primarily for white men, and it's fallen very primarily for rural white men. Uh, not exclusively for rural white men, but primarily rural and exurban white men, and the deaths are dying or deaths of uh, what are called deaths of despair, the dying of alcoholism, drugs, and suicide. Um, mm-hmm. And it, and that is that is not a coincidence. It is not a coincidence that that is happening after decades of what you just described. Yeah, I definitely saw that. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. I, and whenever I'd go back and visit my grandparents, you know, over the winter breaks when I was in college or or what have you, um, just a lot of undereducated, mostly white mostly men who, you know, back in the day were in charge of their land and their farms and their families, um, were no longer able to, to do that. And, and opiates are horrible, uh, their impact in those communities, the, the, the drug rates, suicide rates, depression. Um, there's a whole shift in terms of the power, right, power structure in terms of, like, women are getting more power, women are mm-hmm. having more access to education and therefore are starting to earn a higher income. Um, and it changes the dynamic a lot. And then people are going back into the faith communities, which, you know, have, they have these like moments, I think, where the faith community gets involved politically, both on the left and on the right. But uh, it was the first time, I feel like, I don't know, maybe five years ago, going back to Missouri and really hearing them um, lobby from the pulpit, you know, which I just, I was shocked. Um, there was uh, some like anti-abortion sentiment that was happening by the pastor at my cousin's church that I was just like, wait, is this legal? I didn't think that you're, you're not supposed to be doing this, right? We're <laughs> talking about political issues at the, uh, during the sermon. 
and particular candidates without naming them, but emphasizing that, you know, how important it is that you have God-chosen men representing the community in D.C. You know, Um, if Disney has taught us anything, it's that attack status is just a wish your heart makes. (laughs) I like Disney, although my daughter is like, I don't want to be a Disney princess mom. I'd rather be president. I'm like, you go for it. Hell yeah, now we're talking about. On which, so this actually is a nice segue to, uh, you know, to this broad, to a broader question of, of, uh, you know, of of your daughter's inevitable presidential candidacy and her victory. Um, (laughs) Is doing. Let's, there, there are a number of organizations out there that are doing work on gender representation in politics. Um, yeah. this obviously, is an area where we've made. I mean, this past past federal election, we made a significant amount of progress. Still, uh, quite a long ways to go. Uh, who is doing, in your view of this? And again, this is something you've done a lot of. Who out there is doing good work on gender representation in politics? And and who could we expect to do better? Who who, who is out there yeah. trying to do this thing and, and needs to step it up a little bit? Well, I think uh, on the macro level, right, at the national level, we've got Emerge America, which has separate state chapters um, that have done very well. I think one of the statistics is, you know, women win at the same rate as men. We just don't run enough. Um, Emerge women, so these are women who've gone through the Emerge program. They usually pay, like, a small fee. They do a 10-week training program. They have access to progressive leaders. Um, they develop internal teams of support. So when they do run, they have this kind of already their kitchen cabinet together. Those women tend to run 70% of the time. That's seven zero. So seven out of 10 times. Um, so very, Emerge America has, has amazing um, metrics in terms of their, their win score. Uh, another great organization on the national level is Emily's List, who uh, initially was at the federal races only, uh, standing for with the early money is like East, so it's it's if you give money to women now, it'll pay you know in the tenfold in terms of of their representation in Congress. And now they've expanded to local elections. Um, so I think Emily's list has really over the past two to three years um, recognized the importance of building women in this pipeline. Um, so if we support women in city councils and conservative communities to to talk openly about women's reproductive rights and then the right to abortion, then when you get those women into Congress or into the U.S. Senate, uh, it really makes an, a big impact in terms of protecting our rights to privacy and rights to, to pro-choice. Um, other organizations include the National Women's Political Caucus. Um, I serve on our local community, the L.A. West Side Chapters Board, um, but we have a national caucus and then state caucuses, and then those state caucuses break down into local community caucuses. And then another like fun pack, I think a fun is the it's called the Wolf Pack, the Women Under Forty Pack. So that's um, a pack that exists for women running for federal office uh, um, who are under the age of forty. Um, so those are mostly progressive organizations. Um, a Republican one is called Value in Electing Women. Um, that started in 1997. So it's uh, it also supports putting women into federal office. But as we saw with the most recent election, there's only one new Republican woman um, going to Congress in 2019. Um, all of wow. the other women going are, are Democrats. And then you have at the state level, uh, I'm involved, like you were saying, in the California, a lot of California politics. I... Um, even though our California Democratic Party does have a women's caucus, I feel like we could always be doing more, um, in particular supporting local women running for office. 
So one of the reasons that I am involved in the National Women's Political Caucus LA Westside chapter is to support the women running for school board, women running for city council, women running for county supervisor, um, women running for rent control board, you know, all the sort of local offices uh, where, where women could use their support. Uh, but then if you kind of, you know, step it up into the state level, uh, another great organization is called Close the Gap. And what they're doing is they're looking at state races where progressive women can um, can flip the seats. So we're looking at our state legislature, uh, our state assembly, or our state senate, um, and then our um, statewide offices. Like we have, I'm so excited that this coming year we have a significant number of women who are leading our state. So we have a, we'll have a state treasurer, we have our state controller, we have a state lieutenant governor um, who are all women. Um, and this is, I think it's it's setting things in place for us to hopefully have a, a female governor after Gavin Newsom hopefully wins his re-election after he finishes his first term. Um, uh, and then sort of like after Close the Gap, which identifies women to run and helps train them and introduce them to um, uh, qualified men and women who could support their candidacy, there's an organization called California Women's List, which is a PAC that supports women running for, Democratic women running for state office, so either statewide or for the state legislature. Um, and then, of course, you know, Emerge California. And then there's another organization that is nonpartisan called California Women Lead, which provides training programs across the state for Republican and Democratic and decline-to-state or no-party-preference women um, for either local office, so women who want to run for a city council, et cetera, um, or statewide office or appointments. Um, the appointment project is something I think that, that I've heard mostly talked about in women's organizations or these women political training programs. And the idea behind it is, you know, maybe you're active in your PTA, right? Or maybe you're active in your local park community or your local library, you volunteer, and you want to take your leadership to the next level. You're not quite ready to run for office because maybe you don't have access to political capital or access to financial capital, but you want to do something. What, what can you do next? And the thing you do next is apply for a commission. You apply for a city commission or a county commission or a state commission, depending on your your influence and your experience. And um, the, the appointment project in places like the California Women Lead Organization uh, help create that, that pathway so that women know how to apply for these commission spots, know how to get appointed. And then once they're appointed, now they have... Um, a record, right? They, they, they're sitting now on a civic board having to deal with issues that are at more of a macro level than, you know, the sort of little things that they've been dealing with these little projects. Um, and it, it helps them create their, um, their, their, their political influence. So when they want to run for office, they can point to something that they've done for the community. Um, that, that's, that they have a record of, of, you know, their civic commitment. So that's, it's a big, big group, big list. Happy to provide you the Twitter signs for most of those that I know about. Uh, please do, and uh, and we'll get those up on on the Taking Ship Twitter feed as well. That is a much larger and and I think a much richer ecosystem, uh, certainly than I knew about. And and I and I think I, I suspect probably for a lot of our listeners, we tend to know the big national ones um, and and be less aware of the the you know, the excellent work that's being done by a lot of organizations and, and the results in California, I think, uh, speak for themselves on which subject I want to very quickly, uh, just ask, uh, uh, are there any Republicans left in California? I think there's a few in like Newport maybe, 
Newport Beach, a lot of our real estate developers, but yeah, I, you know, they're somewhere. I mean, you know, up in Pepperdine when I, when I went to grad school there a couple of years ago, <laughs> there's some there. Um, you know, and there were a lot in Northern California in these, and in Paradise, which unfortunately was as destroyed by the campfire, by the fire that, that literally destroyed a town. Um, it'll be interesting to see what support those communities can get from the federal government. You know, wait, what, 90% of the land that was burned was federal land. Um, wow. I wonder what the California you know, Republican Party will do to help uh, you know, bring those lands back to full fruition. I mean, it's, wow. I, don't, I don't really, I don't know. I mean, I, there are some people we know who know some people who are Republicans. So I, I think I know some, but sure. yeah. Well, I'm sure Devin Nunes can be counted on to do his duty. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like I have some people who moved here who were Republican. Now they've kind of moved into a declined state or no party preference. Yeah. But, well, I mean, it, it's interesting. I, I, there's, you know, what was, there's been some talk in the progressive circles in California that some of the new, um, our, some of our new Congress representatives who are heading to D.C., are actually Republicans um, in you know Democratic clothing because they're more moderate Dems, um, but they represent more you know formerly Republican stronghold communities. So those in Orange County, in particular, um, that are more maybe business focused, but they're like you know they work for environmental or energy companies that are about renewable energy. So <laughs> I, it'll be interesting to see like what kind of backlash. Like there's progressive, and then there's moderate, and then there's like something in between there, but like. Is anything right of progressive Republican? Not necessarily, yeah. but the Democratic Party in California is. We're going to have some interesting conversations, I'm sure. God, I hope not. That is a <laughs> that is a real testament to the spectrum of of uh, or to, to you know to where the sort of middle ground of the California Democratic Party is. If uh, if if you're looking at someone like Katie Porter and saying, well, you know, she's a little bit conservative for a Democrat, but that's happening. I mean, the conversations are that like Gil Cisneros, who literally funded his campaign because he was he won the lottery, right? Like, like is he more of a, a moderate Dem? Is he a progressive Dem? I mean, is it a capital P for progressive? I mean, it's uh, it's it'll be interesting to see the conversations that happen. I, I one of the other issues that came up in our state. Uh, race was for superintendent of public instruction. Uh, we had Marshall Tuck uh, versus Tony Thurmond, uh, and Tony Thurmond w- was supported by the labor union, we were supported by California Teachers Association, the California Federation of Teachers, and then you had Marshall Tuck, who was supported by you know, moderates and um, the Republican Party, but he actually wasn't. It was like individuals who were Republican were voting for him, but he was a supporter of charter schools, and that's been a big issue in California. Because it's sort of, you know, our public schools are declining in terms of, you know, the, the value of the education that the students are getting from our public schools. We have, you know, less money coming from federal tax dollars. It's a bigger strain on local resources. But a lot of it has to do with the way public schools are funded. When you have public schools being funded by property tax dollars and you have depreciation of value of property in um uh, these underserved communities that have higher density, like with less money and more populous communities, like you're going to end up with lower quality, right? Unless you find a way to bring more money in. Um, so, so you have to have an alternative solution to, to, to get education sort of back up to where it should be. Um, 
are charter schools the answer? I don't know, right? Are public schools the answer? Well, public schools have to be part of the solution. Um, but how do you get money back into those public schools, in particular in these communities where students are suffering from daily trauma? I mean, this is, these are studies that have been out now for a couple of years that a lot of these students from these um, underserved poor communities, these, these children, and even more so now with what's happening with these ICE raids and so many deportations happening in these communities, children, children are suffering from daily trauma. And you, you have to incorporate that into how you teach children from you know, preschool up to 12, uh, 12th grade. You know, you, if you ignore that piece, then you're not teaching to the whole child. And there's only so much that uh, a traumatized brain can retain uh, on a daily basis. That is so, so true. Um, and, and I think that's, a, a, I think, a, a longer uh, subject that I, I would like to get into. I think maybe in a, the, the whole pub, the, the funding model for school, uh, for public schools in this country versus charter and so forth. Because I think, you know, you mentioned the, the studies have been out for a couple of years. And, you know, among some of that data, the uh, local property tax funding model. I mean, it seems basically to have been entirely exposed for what it is, uh, which is uh, you know ineffective at best, and uh, you know and criminally malicious at worst. It's just wildly ineffective, uh, and and deeply deeply unfair. So I mean, I hope at some point we'll get a chance on on this podcast, perhaps with you, uh, to get into that discussion at, at greater length. Uh, for the time being, I would like now to move. Uh, this has been absolutely excellent, uh, but I want us to uh, we I want us to to move now into the lightning round. Um, and we will, uh, we will wrap this up. So uh, we're moving now for into the lightning round. Barbie, are you ready? I'm ready. Excellent. Bring it. Please name a book, piece of music, film, television program, or any other piece of culture you'd recommend to our listeners. All right. Well, I'm, I'm a classic fan of Dead Poets Society. It's like my favorite film. I feel like there, there's something about that movie that I don't know if it's, it's like the, the throwback to, you know, education where you can stand on your desks. Uh, read poetry in circles, but I just, that's my favorite movie of all time, The Dead Poets Society. So I feel like if, and I like it. <laughs> if you need to be inspired, that's, watch that movie. Um, yeah, that's what I go for. Sorry, I was, otherwise I'd say Supergirl, you know, I mean, that's sort of back to back girl, but that, that's, that's my like, when I, when I, when I need a little bit of, I only have a little bit of time. Supergirl is like my, my go-to show. Barbie, a food or drink you've had recently that you'd recommend? Oh, that's a good one. I, you know, I, I'm a fan of, of coffee. I'm not, not just a fan. I'm an addict. I'll just admit it. I, I'm addicted to coffee. And I think that like if everyone should have it to try it at some point. The, the French, they've got it. You just do those little, like little tiny espresso cups, a couple of those in the middle of the day picks you up right away. So yeah, I, I'm, this is not being sponsored by the uh, coffee trade association at all, but although, although I, it, could, yeah. it could be, it very much could be. We're extremely <laughs> I could be a total snob, but like <laughs> pumpkin spice lattes, eggnog, you know, I, yeah, I'm, I, what do they call it? I'm basic that way. Okay, fine. Yeah. I like my eggnog latte in the holiday and the little red Starbucks cup. That's awesome. <laughs> Good. I'm a fan. You know, you know, I mean, call me basic. Got to be yourself, Barbie. So come clean. How big is the coffee cup you're holding right now? Oh, it's giant. It, it really is. I think it's like a, it's like one of those 16 ounces. And it says, uh, it's got black. I'll have to send you a picture of it. It's, it's a black cup and it, with white writing that says, life is tough. So am I. So nice. Excellent. I like people whose coffee mugs more resemble like a mixing bowl with a handle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Love to drink coffee by the hogshead for sure. Uh, excellent. Good. Onward. Uh, Barbie, what is the first CD you bought with your own money? And you, see, you can oh tell this, this set of questions was written by people of our generation because they're, they're, at some point we're going to hit a younger guest who's like, what the hell is a CD? But yeah. that day is not today. Well, you know, uh, I, I have to say I remember exactly what it was. It was Tori Amos, her, like, her, her debut CD album. Holy but smokes. it was CD then. So on the nose. Oh, perfect. <laughs> That's perfect. We're going to have to retire this question. What did you guess ahead of time? No fair. But yeah, Tori Amos, all the way. That, Wait, now, now I'm curious. Frank, what was the first one you bought with your, with your own money? <laughs> this is a good question. I think, it was, uh, I think it was Bruce Springsteen's Lucky Town. All right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, uh, you? I'm appreciated. I had to think about it for a second, but it was a Metallica Black Album. Hell yeah. Oh, there my gosh. Go. I would have never guessed. <laughs> but I think I think the Tori Amos debut CD. I think we have to retire this question because I yeah. think that's the archetypal that's done. first CD yeah. purchased with your own money. Like, yep, that's the end of that question. All yeah, right, terrific. <laughs> you've retired the question. That's the best possible. Yes. All right, so Barbie, the last question I ask people uh, in the Trump era, or really any era at this point, because we're deep into the Trump era and dumbest timeline America, uh, lots of people are interested in doing something. What is one single organization you recommend supporting and why? Ooh. It's a good, okay, it's a tough question, but I, I, I think it's all about getting out the vote, right? It, you just have to register to vote, get out the vote. So what are organizations that focus on I'm getting out the vote. I mean, I feel like there's so many. I mean, Rock the Vote is still around. Can you believe it? Yeah, and doing it, and doing interesting work after a little bit of a period in the wilderness. I think. I think it'd be speaking of Tori Amos and Metallica. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's get them out. So, so I, I mean, I defer to you guys. You probably know the best organizations to help get out the vote. I, everything I know about about getting out the vote is uh, is partisan. But I think we have to reach out. What I'm finding with millennials, like when I did the stuff with the Hillary campaign, is that a lot of the millennials and these Gen Zers or whatever, they don't want to affiliate with the party. It's like big brother, bad, bad news. So it's, it's registering voters, regardless of party affiliation, um, coming out as just, I'm someone who thinks it's important for you to vote, whatever you, you are on the party spectrum. Um, so I, just, I support those efforts. I think that's the most important thing. So I would say, yeah, rock the vote now because it seems to be relatively nonpartisan, but there, I'm sure there are other, hopefully by 2020, we'll see some millennial-driven campaigns and organizations that are focused on getting out the, the vote for millennial voters. So if you're out there, call me. Just let me know. I'm happy to support. <laughs> Terrific. Most excellent. And yes, uh, voter registration, voter turnout is exceedingly the name of the game. Uh, so Barbie, thank you. This has been good as hell. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. We really appreciate it. Thank you, gentlemen. And the, the sun is up, and I miss Maggie, but it was nice to have Batgirl on. I think she's, <laughs> she's a great addition. She had good points, uh, she always. Adds, she adds a great deal to, to, to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. I'll, I'm happy to I'll share, you these, uh, I'll share this information with you with some of these organizations that I, I brought up so that you can share them with your, um, with your seven or eight listeners. I think uh, yes, uh, both of them will really appreciate it. Yeah, <laughs> owned, owned at the end of our own podcast, Barbie. Thank you so much for joining us. We really thank you, John. All right, take care. That was terrific. I'm so glad we finally managed to get Barbie on. Uh, we've been trying to do that for a while. She is a very, very busy person. Um, but uh, our dear thanks to our good friend Barbie for joining us, and um, and apologies again on behalf of uh, Batgirl for uh, squawking a little bit at the beginning. And I'm going to apologize on behalf of Maggie for missing this great conversation. We'll have to have Barbie on again so that Maggie can participate. 
Um, obviously, please do uh, rate us and leave us a comment on any of the podcasting services you listen to. Uh, please do keep your eyes out for more information on the live recording on December 17th, which in all honesty may just happen in my apartment. Um, and if you'd like to follow Frank, please follow him at, at Frank Spring, Maggie at Maggie uh, Maggie M012, me at Ellie Jacobs, and uh, you can follow all of us at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in pterodactyl. I think I've used it already, but it's it's good. It's a good one. It's a classic. Uh, with, with that, Frank, where are we headed this week? So this week we are headed to the Indian Ocean, to the island of uh, Goramara, uh, which is an island in the uh, the Indian Ocean. Uh, it is part of India, and it is part of a string of islands that are are sinking. Uh, as a result of climate change. And by sinking, I mean, like, people are up to their ankles. Uh, it is, it's, it's bad, friends. It's bad. They're, they're going to have to abandon their islands, uh, or at least it looks that way. There may be some solutions out there to preserve this, but this has the, the makings of a, of a very bad, uh, a very bad humanitarian disaster. Uh, although they, these are not very populous places. You're not talking about a lot of people, but you are talking about people who are at present at, at risk of losing their homes. It's not a guarantee this is going to happen, but it seems possible. Uh, so we're going, and, and if, if, if that does not motivate us to do something about climate change, I think nothing will, because here's the scenario. If this kind of thing persists, it won't, it'll start what, you know, what will begin, this is the classic saying, what begins in Goramara ends in your kitchen. Uh, and what will happen is it, we will all end up going downstairs. Picture this, it's Sunday morning, you go downstairs, you're looking to have a nice cup of coffee, and there in your kitchen is a shark. That is the future that waits for all of us. Climate change is a tool of the uh, of big ocean. Uh, it is the most powerful weapon in our enemy's arsenal, and it must and it must be stopped, if only for that reason, because you don't want a shark uh, when you're going down going downstairs for your morning coffee. This is ridiculous. So we're going to Goramara to provide whatever support we can to these good people and to prevent us from having to have, have our breakfast coffee with sharks. It's terrible, and I won't stand for it. Welcome. Take care, everybody.